Well, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Those were the words of Martin Luther as he stood before the whole weight and tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church some 500 years ago. And if you've ever wondered why it is that we call ourselves Lutherans, it's because of Martin Luther. Not because we worship Luther, but because Martin Luther helped us reclaim this understanding of a focus on the goodness of God, the gospel that is poured out upon us freely by grace through faith. What a wonderful gift that is. Friends, as we gather together this morning, I want to invite you to have a Bible with you. If you need a Bible, the ushers are going to make their way down the aisle to bring a Bible to you uh, because uh, as uh, we work together today, I always love if people have a Bible in their hands so that they can be looking at God's Word and listening as we study together. Today's text will be coming from Luke chapter 16, and it's on page 1,534, excuse me, 1,534 in the Quest Bibles, or you can open up your own Bible to Luke chapter 16 when we get to that time. Well, it is Reformation Sunday, and you may have heard something within that message, that beautiful spoken word message, that speaks to something that we are talking about over the course of these few weeks together in our current sermon series. And that's this, while the Reformation was a refocus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, while it was a huge movement that eventually resulted in all of us being here today, being free to worship Jesus and know and trust his mercy in our lives, there was something in particular that brought about this Reformation. There was something specific and particular that Martin Luther was very, very upset about, and believe it or not, it had something to do with money. Can you believe that? Something controversial having to do with money and the church? <laughs> I know, but it's true. The sale of indulgences, trying to buy your way into heaven or buy somebody else's way out of purgatory. Whatever it may have been, there was an idea that there could be a monetary transaction between human beings and the church, which then meant a monetary transaction between human beings and God that would result in some extra favor in your life. It's not true, friends. It's not true at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. So why am I standing up here in a sermon series talking about financial stewardship? It's because it is so easy for our understanding of financial truths to be confused, corrupted, or manipulated. It happens so regularly, it is such a, a, a burden on my heart. And I know in so many ways it is just a black mark on the church. And that's why we have to talk about it. There's a reason that we need to talk about it, and it's because of this. Money is a spiritual matter. I said this last week as we began together. Money is a spiritual matter. Not a matter of your salvation, not a matter of earning something with God, but it is most certainly a spiritual matter, and that is why I come to you today to share with you today. And people still get the wrong idea when preachers talk about money, and I can totally understand why. You know, it reminds me of a joke. There are these two gentlemen who are marooned on a desert island. One of them is walking around, pacing back and forth, very nervous, very upset. The other gentleman is sitting back, relaxed under a palm tree, taken in the sun. 
The first gentleman looks to the second gentleman and says, what are you doing relaxing? Don't you understand? We are abandoned here. We are lost on this island. Nobody's going to find us here. The second gentleman said, relax. I've got nothing to worry about. I make $10,000 a week. I have all the money that I need. The first gentleman looked at him and said, what are you talking about? We are abandoned here on a desert island. Your money is useless to you. Why would you think that that could be of any service to you? The second gentleman said, no, you don't understand. I make $10,000 a week, and I tithe regularly to my church. Believe me, my pastor will find me. <laughs> I know, we've got to poke a little fun at ourselves in this. It's reality, friends. <laughs> it's reality. Yeah, you know, I mean, the real reason that we talk about this, that we bring this subject up at all, is because Jesus himself talked about it. Jesus understood that money is a spiritual matter. He talked about business. He talked about finances. He talked about all sorts of things related and tied into earthly, worldly treasures and money. He spoke about it specifically. Now, we want to talk about everything that Jesus wants us to learn and know throughout his word. That's why we can take two or three weeks once a year to talk specifically and particularly about financial stewardship because Jesus spoke about it all the time. He taught parables about it, and he used it as a metaphor for helping people understand spiritual truths and to help us grow. And believe me, friends, there is nothing more important or of a higher priority to Jesus for you as one who he has claimed as his child is for you to grow spiritually. He wants us to grow. He desires us to grow. And he knows that one of the things that can certainly be a hindrance in our growth is our understanding of finances and the way that money is meant to work in our lives. Money is a spiritual matter. So that's why we've started into this sermon series. And last week we got kicked off with a passage of scripture that many have heard before, but it might have been new to you and it might be new to you today. It's twice where Jesus says something to this effect. Store up for yourselves, do not, excuse me, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, obviously, you can't write a check to heaven and expect it to be cashed. So Jesus must be talking about something of a spiritual nature related to our financial lives, and that's absolutely true. He's speaking in this case particularly about what we do with the resources that God has given us in this life and what it is that they are meant to be used for. We could either try to hold them tightly to ourselves, store up as much of it for ourselves on this earth as we possibly can, or we can recognize that we are called to bless others with what has blessed us with an open hand to receive from God and to share it with others. And I summarized it in this simple phrase. Nothing you have is yours to keep. Nothing you have is yours to keep. But everything you give is yours forever. That's what Jesus means when he's talking about storing up treasure. He recognizes that we can't write a check to heaven, but we can use the resources that God has given us to bless people. 
to encourage people, to help people come into a a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ that starts now and carries them all the way through eternity. That's where we got started last week. And we're going to continue this week with another parable, another story that Jesus has to share with us today that specifically ties into the way in which we handle our earthly treasures. So I ask you again, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We're going to begin reading at the very first verse, right at the top of the page. So please follow along as I read. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Well, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's pause right there. Jesus has set the scene with a story. It's a story of a manager. Who's ever met a manager before or been a manager of a store in some case? Yeah, different kinds of managers, people managers, managing stores. Managers are often responsible for taking care of the till, right? You got to make sure that everything balances out at the end of the day. It's an important role, and it was an important role in the time of Jesus as well. This particular manager is responsible for handling all of the things that are coming in, and he's also a sales manager. Anybody ever been a sales manager before? Yeah, some of you have, where you're responsible not only for managing things well, but you are responsible for making sales happen. Well, here in this story, we have a guy who was a sales manager. It was his responsibility to go out and and to make sure that his master's business was flourishing. And you know, there's something about people who are in sales that separates out the ones who are really good at it and the ones who just don't seem to make any progress in it at all. Three things. If you want to be successful in sales, people have to know you, they have to like you, and they have to trust you. Know, like, and trust. Three important aspects for any salesperson to be successful. And notice one thing that I didn't mention. I didn't mention money. Because if your focus in sales is on money and how much money you can make doing it, I guarantee you, you won't succeed. Because people will see right through that when you're coming alongside them. They want someone that they can know, that they can like, and that they can trust. Now, I'm sure that many of you have had traveling salespeople of some sort come to your door. 
used to be very, very common that commissioned salespeople went door to door selling brushes, the Fuller Brush Man. Anybody remember the Fuller Brush Man? Yep, see, there's still a few here. <laughs> or the Kirby back vacuum sal salesman, you know, come to your door, show you how great their vacuum cleaners work. It was very common. We don't see that as much anymore, but people still come by door to door. And I don't know what you do when you see somebody coming up to your door to sell something, but I know that I pull the curtains closed and run towards the back of the house. <laughs> I don't want to interact with this person who's coming up here to sell me whatever it is that they're interested in selling me. I don't know them. I don't necessarily like them because they're interrupting my day at home. <laughs> and I certainly don't trust them because how on earth could I trust them? And that's the case with almost everybody who comes to my door and to your door with the exception of one group of people. They show up at your door. Most of them are girls. They're wearing a neat little uniform and they're selling cookies. <laughs> right? Right? When the Girl Scouts come to the door, I run to the door. <laughs> we gotta get to the door. Oh, it's a Girl Scout. We like Girl Scouts. We know them. Many times they're uh, in our neighborhood or they're somebody else's daughter and we trust them because we give them the money and they give us the cookies. <laughs> right? Isn't that interesting? It's because they've built up a reputation over years and years as being likable, as being known in our community, and as being trustworthy with the product that they are bringing to us. But that's not the case all the time. And interestingly enough, this particular salesman, while he seems to be a good salesman, is also being fired for some reason. He's a dishonest salesman. There's something that he is doing in this business of his master that is not good. It's not above board. And the master gets wind of this, brings him in and says, you're done. Pack up your stuff. You're not working for me anymore. You can't be my manager anymore. Now here's the thing. You've probably heard the old adage, if you take care of your customer, your customer will take care of you. If you take care of your customer, your customer will take care of you. This guy is focused on his customers. And you all, you all know the kind of people who you've dealt with in your life who were focused on their customers and wanted the very, very best for their customers. I'll share with you one in my life who I really, really appreciated. His name was Kent Gersma. Kent Gersma passed a number of years ago, back to the Lord, but he was a realtor. So pay attention, Jeff. <laughs> Kent was a realtor. And Kent had built up a very successful real estate business, a very successful office, many people and many agents working for him. But I knew Kent because my mom knew Kent and introduced me to Kent. And so Kent was the guy who came along and helped us buy our first home. And Kent was there when we sold that home. And he was there when we bought our next home. And he helped us as we were trying to sell that home. Kent was there for us in each one of those occasions. Four interactions, to be exact, over the course of about eight years. Well, that doesn't seem like a lot to build up a relationship, does it? But here's the thing about Kent. Every year, without fail, Kent Gersma showed up at my door and he knocked on the door 
And I went to say hi to Kent, and Kent would say, hi, how you doing? Tell me about your family. And he knew my kids by name. And he knew my mom, of course, and would ask how things were going in life. And normally this was sometime around December, and it was cold, and he was standing out there with his coat, talking to us in the door. And then Kent, without fail, would hand us a calendar. Hey, just wanted to bring by my calendar and stop in and see how you're doing. That was it. Kent was gone. Every year, Kent Gersma stopped by with a calendar. Now, did I care about the calendar? No. It was just a calendar. But believe me, I was thinking about who I was going to talk to when I was getting ready to sell my house. Who do you suppose I went to? Kent Gersma. Because Kent took care of us. Kent made some money off of us, too, for sure. But that's fine because I knew that he had our best interest in mind as well as while he was working to build his business. So you take care of your customers. Well, this sales manager in this story, who was a dishonest sales manager, knows enough to know that he needs to take care of his customers. And he may have been cheating them to this point. We don't really know. We never get out of the story exactly what it is that this sales manager did that was so wrong. But we see what his actions are when he realizes that his job is going to end, his income is going to end, and soon he is going to be without a job, without a home, without a place to stay. All of it is going to fall apart. So what does he do? He goes out to some of those accounts that he has been serving and says, how much do you owe my master? Well, 900 barrels of oil. Wow. Well, here's what I want you to do. Quickly sit down and make it 450. Well, what do you think that did for the customer? Wow, just cut my bill in half. That's pretty good. Now, there's a chance that the reason that he cut it in half is because he had been cheating him to begin with. There's also a high likelihood that part of his commission came out of that extra 450 barrels of oil. But whatever it was, whatever the case is, he knew that what was more important than taking that extra 450 barrels and converting it into money for his own income was to make sure that he had favor with that person. And he does the same with the next. And when he gets back to his master, what does his master do? He praises him. Not because he's a cheat, <laughs> but because he's shrewd. Because he understands something. He understands something so important about resources. So important, as a matter of fact, that Jesus looks at those who are with him and says, why is it that the unrighteous get this and you don't? And it's simply this. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends. Now, even hearing that, you might think, Are you, you mean that Jesus is telling us to buy friends? No. He's telling you to use the worldly income that you get as a way of blessing those around you and building relationships. So use your earthly income and the wealth that God gives to you to make friends and to invest in other people. Great message, right? Let's pack it up. All good. Thank you, Jesus. Really appreciated that. We can move on for the rest of the day. But Jesus has more to say. Jesus has more to teach us. And that's where Jesus starts getting personal. Keep following along with me as we pick it up at verse 10. 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now this is the part where Jesus gets provocative, probably gets himself in some trouble, and maybe I'll get in some trouble too. That's okay. Because Jesus is making a really strong comparison here. He is comparing two things side by side. Worldly wealth and true riches. What does he mean by these things? Well, worldly wealth is clear to us, isn't it? It's money. Worldly wealth is money. The term here is also in, in Hebrew and then coming through the Greek is unrighteous mammon. It's the money that we make. So that's worldly wealth. Then what on earth are the true riches? The true riches are relationships. Starting with your relationship with God and going on to your relationship with every person around you. Jesus is making an equivalency with the way you handle money to the way you manage your relationships. Including your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Now that may sound controversial, but I tell you what, I can tell you why I believe so strongly that this is what Jesus is talking about, even though it is provocative. It's because I do marriage counseling and premarriage counseling. And one of the things that I talk about with every couple that I bring in for premarriage counseling is finances. Every one of them. It is one of three topics that no matter where it is they show up on the charts and the inventories I give them that I spend time talking with them about. You know why? Because I also do marriage counseling. And later on, when these couples are in my office, there are two reasons that they are there that their marriage is struggling. One is sex, the other is money, and sometimes it's both. Almost without fail, something in their relationship related to their financial life is troubling them. It, might, it may be that they separated out their bank accounts and so now their financial lives are separate and they're spending money on different things or they're hiding money from one another or somebody took out a credit card in their own name and didn't let their spouse know and ran up tens of thousands of dollars of charges on this. I wish I was kidding about that, but I've had that happen more than once in a time when I brought a couple into my office. And whatever it is related to those finances, their financial problem has now become a marriage crisis. It is affecting their relationship in huge and sometimes devastating ways. Because money is a spiritual matter. And the way you handle your money and the way that you relate to your money can be directly correlated to how you relate to God and relate to other people. If you don't handle one well, you will not handle the other well. If you're not trustworthy with 
this earthly mammon with this dollars and cents stuff, how am I going to trust you with true riches? And there's only one thing that can truly be considered true riches, and that's people and their relationships. That's what God is after. God isn't after your money. He doesn't need your money. But he knows the human heart. And he knows that if we get some wacky ideas about what our money is supposed to do or not do, or if we think that we can use our money to bribe God or bribe uh, any other person in our lives, we are fooling ourselves and living a foolish life. And it will cost us in our relationships with one another. Especially in some of those most intimate relationships of marriage and family and spreading out into workplace and business and community. And Jesus drives the point home in verse 13, so let me just say it to you one more time. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Money. It's an either-or equation, friends. Because whatever you serve is your master. And whatever you worship is your Lord. If you serve your money and make money the focus of your life, then it masters you. It's not about what you own. It's about what owns you. And if you've got this perverted relationship with your financial life that is unhealthy, it will impact your other relationships. And God says you're either going to serve one or you're going to serve the other. You're either going to serve me or you're going to serve your wallet. And God is jealous about these things for good reason. Because he knows that if we put him first and we see his purposes and his desires for the way that we serve him in every aspect of our lives, it will include our financial resources. And it will bring good not only to us, but to every relationship around us. It's not an easy message, friends. But it's God's truth. It's what Jesus is trying to get through to us. Serve your money and money is your master. But serve God, and you'll master your money for him. You will become a good steward, a good manager, not a dishonest one. You'll become a good manager of the things that God has placed into your hands, the resources he has given you. You will look around for ways to invest that into people around you, into the relationships that can flourish, into your marriage that can be wholesome and holy and devoted to God. He will teach you and show you these things. Because God is just that good. It's not because money is the most important thing. It just happens to be the first thing in a lot of people's lives. And God won't have any competition between serving him and serving anything else. So that's the hard news in this, friends. But let me bring some good news to you, too. Here's the thing. God doesn't just want you to be a good manager of your money. God also wants to help you no matter where it is you are in your life. And I know as some people are listening to this message, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, this message really isn't for me because I don't have any money. <laughs> and you know what? I understand. I've been there. My wife and I have been there. 
And part of the reason that my wife and I were there is because we had something that we had to pay called stupid tax. Anybody ever heard of stupid tax? It's the tax you pay when you're stupid with money. And my wife and I made some really poor decisions financially when we were young together. Sure, we tried to start some businesses. We were trying to do some things that would help us out, but I didn't know what I was doing. And lots of times, I'd just be frivolous with it. Oh, we'll just put it on the credit card. We'll move on from there. It'll be fine. The whole time, we're trying to tithe and be faithful at church, but the reality of it was, this was affecting our relationship. Because at the time, I was out working, and my beloved wife was working at home, raising our children. And guess who had to go out to the mailbox every day? My wife. And guess who began to hate and dread going out to the mailbox every day? My wife. Because she knew whatever was coming was going to be bad news. There'd be another bill. There'd be another minimum payment. There'd be something staring down at us that looked like it was absolutely impossible for us to move ahead. It was devastating. It brought stress and anxiety to our marriage and to our lives as I just kind of wandered blindly through this. And it was affecting our relationship and the way that we were able to relate to others around us. It was going to affect the way that we raised our family. It affected so many things. And I'm so grateful to God that he offered some help to us. And wherever it is that you find yourself financially today, this is not meant to be a message of condemnation towards you. This is an encouragement that we are here to try and help you. And here's one way that we do that. There's a next step that you can consider. And that next step is signing up for a class called Financial Peace University. Some of you may have gone through what's called FPU, Financial Peace University, before. My wife Angela and I did it as soon as we were crashing and burning and realizing how difficult our situation was. And I'm so grateful for that time of our lives. Because God is gracious no matter when you figure this stuff out. But we had to dig our way out of debt. It took us seven years. We dug our way out. And we learned to handle money in a better way. A godly way. We're not perfect about in it, by the way. Don't want you to get that idea. Because I'm certainly not the hero of this story. God is good, and he wants to offer ways for us to learn and understand the best way that we can manage this resource that will bring blessing into every other aspect of our lives so that we can bless others. So Financial Peace University is going to be coming up in February, so you got some time to think about it. Okay, it's going to take place on Thursday nights, right up here at church. Got some great people in our congregation who lead that class. I want you to be thinking about that as you move in to the end of the year. And it's not just for people who are broke, okay? I don't want you to get that idea. It's wonderful things that are in this class that will help anybody no matter where you're at. And I especially want to speak to those of you who are in that 20 to 30-something range. Because I know that we are experiencing a period of time in history like none other where students are racked with sometimes tens and twenties and thirties and fifties of thousands of dollars in student debt. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Friends, there's a way forward, and I understand the pain that you're in right now. And it might mean that the way that God wants to help you is to just help you dig your way out and see some hope going forward. That's my desire for you, is that you take the step to bring some hope. God is good, friends. He desires good things for you, and the value that you bring is never 
measured by what you give to this church or what you give to anybody else. Your value is the fact that Jesus values you, that God loves you and has called you to be one of his own, paid for you with his precious blood. That's your eternal value. And if you get that and begin to understand that, well, then you truly are rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together into this place, for helping us, Lord, to to deal with the real things in our lives, Lord. You are not distant from us. You are close, and you see everything that we struggle with, Lord. And while this might not be the particular issue that everybody in this room is struggling with, I know that there are some. And I know that in your grace and your mercy, Lord, you come to meet them in this place at this time right now, or even if they're watching this on a recording or watching the live stream. Lord, wherever they are, Father, meet them right where they are. Shower them with your grace. Show them your hope and a future and remind them, remind them that their life that is found eternally in you is a free gift of your grace. We only need trust in it. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your mighty name. And together, all God's people said, amen. Amen.